We're live. Thank you, Logan. What's up, Z-Pack? It's your boy ZDogMD. We're live and direct out of Z-Studios. Today, we're just going to talk mad smack. And I'll get a little housekeeping out of the way. Y'all who've been hitting the supporter button on Facebook have been blowing it up. For $4.99 a month, you can have, we're a freemium model. So we do all everything we normally do for free on the, on the main page. But if you become a supporter, you get access to live conversations that are pretty much nightly with me, where I talk hella smack, and I don't use the word smack, okay? I use the S word that ends with T. I say H-E double hockey sticks. I say the big bad words, people, and you can get it all for $4.99. Actually, it's a nice little tribe we formed there. So we sort of talk about what should go on the main page. We dig into the issues deeper. And I say stuff that I'm a little reluctant to say in front of a million people, but I'll say to you, because I know you're a Super PAC fan. You know what I'm saying? Anyways, hit that button. That being said, we today have a special guest, and you guys are going to be like, this is neither special nor guest, until we recall that Tom Heinever has been gone uh, for a while because he was with his dad uh, as his dad was dying of prostate cancer metastatic and was in hospice and passed away and now we have him back and we're going to talk about a bunch of stuff including how he cried while listening to Hamilton. Tom Heineber. Can I tell you that it is crazy disconcerting to be the guest who's sitting here while you talk to this camera over here? <laughs> we should never do that again. It's the worst thing ever because I'm yeah. literally, if you guys saw how this is set up, I'm looking slightly over Tom's shoulder. So as I'm talking to you guys, Tom's sitting here going, he's like having a tick. Like I thought he was going to have a meltdown. Anyway. Yeah, it's very now I Now I... I know what it's like to be the guest now, and now I'm uncomfortable. Now you know why our yeah. guests always clam up. You have not put me at ease, sir. That's not my job. <laughs> <laughs> my job has never been to put Tom really Heinebert at ease. It really derails the conversation right away, because you're like, why is this guy not looking at me to my face? That's true. Maybe we'll have to remember that, because you know, we'll get like an important guest on, and I'll yeah. be like, so guys, here's the thing. And then, and then, okay, so anyways, and the person's just like, what just happened? Anyways, we got... Uh, we got hella comments, so leave your nice. comments. So anyway, before we talk about like hospice and death and dying, did you see that dude who used to work on the Cosby Show, and he now works as a checker at Trader Joe's, and Fox News was shaming him? Listen, listen, man, I saw that. I saw that thing <laughs> in uh, in the news feed and my Apple news feed, and it showed the dude, and then it showed him as he was on the Cosby yeah. Show, and shows him in Trader Joe's with this like, "Hi, I'm Elrond" or whatever his name is, and I was like, I cannot believe. They are shaming a dude for having an honest effing job working at Trader Joe's. By the way, also, those Trader Joe's guys are so nice. Yeah. And they're like, look, I he know. was a famous actor. Now he's at Trader Joe's. I thought Fox News was supposed to represent conservative thought, which is personal responsibility, hard work. Go to work. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, don't shame somebody for working. Plus, he looks like he's been hitting the mini cones pretty hard. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, he's put on a few... It was just not nice. Like, it was super rude. And the mini cones at Trader Joe's are so good. They They're are like my choice. favorite snack. I get the 70% dark chocolate almonds at Trader Joe's. You know, you know what's funny, too? So then I saw a thing, the follow-up where he got interviewed. And he's like, yeah, at first I was really shamed. And, like, I felt really bad for about a second until about a million people came online. And they were like, dude, let this guy do his job. Yeah. Like, about okay. a million people were like, hey, Fox News, like, yeah. you know, go to hell. Yeah, and they were like, Basically. At, le at least it wasn't Whole Foods, because that would have been just egregious. Uh, let's read some comments real quick. Um, very sorry for your loss, Tom. Carl Bernard. Uh, Tom, you are famous with us, Chrissy Souza. You know, I'm sorry for your loss, Tom, Marilyn. I'm actually quite moved by the outpouring of support for Tom Heineber, who everybody hates. I hate you. And yet, you know, having been through this, and we've kind of been with you, and we've tried to respect yeah. your story by not telling a lot about it, but it's been hard the last three months, probably. Well, let's talk about it. 
So here's the first thing, is like, looking back on my father's terminal diagnosis, it was 20 months from diagnosis to death, which is, at the time, feels long, but is crazy quick. That's super fast. Yeah. Because I remember when you told me, you called me and you're like, you know, my dad has prostate cancer. Yeah. And this is what they're saying. What do you think? And I'm like, well, it really depends yeah. on a lot of things. And that was only 20 months ago. And I'm stuck in this place where, you know, my father was like, uh, he did everything he thought he possibly had to do and could do. You know, all the all these experimental treatments and, you know, like, all, he had 16 rounds of chemo and all this radiation, Lupron shots. Uh, they were injecting his liver with, you know, heavy metals, whatever they were doing. Chemoembolization. Some, yeah. Something. I don't know. None of it seemed to work because, mm -hmm. in my opinion, the literature said he should have had 24 months. He had 20. So I'm kind of sitting here like, did he shave off six months of his life or four months of his life? By being super aggressive. And then, yeah, just makes make doctors money, you know, and it didn't give him any quality of life. And then nobody... Nobody really talked. In the stages of grief, my father never left denial. Mm. Like, he never left the first stage of grief. So how come nobody was having the hard conversation with him and the end-of-life conversation? He got to this point at the end where he was just using his oncologist as his primary care doctor. And I kept saying to him, like, your oncologist is not your primary. His incentives don't align to have that conversation with you. And no human being is better than their incentives. And so this was incredibly frustrating during this, like, time period. And he was so tell you how paternal the relationship went between this oncologist and my father at the end. He was so, he needed this man's approval so much that he asked my aunts and uncles to break him out of hospice, inpatient hospice, when he was looking back in retrospect seven or eight days away from death to drive him where he had a huge tumor in his body, fractures in his spine, where every bump in the road was painful. Across town, 30 miles, to go see this man in his office and basically get his approval to die. Like, am I sick enough now to die? Am I, is it right that I'm in hospice? And it's like, in retrospect, I mean, and when you're around somebody that's in denial, you're, you become in denial mm. too. Yeah. You know what I mean? I think we were all in yeah. this sort of reality I distortion. To, I kept trying to fight it, but I, you know, he was such in denial that it almost made me be in denial. Mm -hmm. I kept reminding myself, I was like, he's gonna be dead within 24 months, mm -hmm. you know, because that's what the literature says for people who have stage four widely metastatic prostate cancer at diagnosis. Mm -hmm. But like, I don't know, man, it was just a crazy, the whole thing was a crazy experience. And you know, I know too, I'm like a muggle who knows too much about the medical system now. And so I'm seeing the cracks and like, to be honest, I don't want to see the cracks. Mm. I don't. I want to go back to before I had special knowledge. Yeah, I want you to put me back asleep. I want to be somebody important, like an actor or something. You know <laughs> I want I mean? a nice like, steak. I want a nice right. steak. Yeah, <clears throat> right. What I've learned is ignorance is bliss. Well, you, you know, know what's, basically. What's interesting is when you actually did end up going into hospice with your dad, taking your dad into hospice. A lot of the staff recognized you as yeah. Tom Heineber. And did that change the dynamic? Did you feel like? working on the show gave you more leverage with being able to understand what was going on there? Or? No, I thought, you know, honestly, I thought everybody in hospice was like the best people you could ever hope to meet. You know what I mean? Like the, the hospice nurses, amazing. NPs, like the NP really excelled in hospice mm. care. Yeah. I mean, she was, and I, I watched this woman, she would spend 30 minutes in the room right next to ours talking to the family and then 
30 minutes in our room and then 30 minutes in the next room. Mm. Like really just like answering everyone's questions and helping make decisions with the family. You know, the doctor I only saw like once or twice, but very nice also, same thing. Mm -hmm. uh, the nurses were all great. So like, I don't feel like it affected care or anything. It wasn't weird for me in that way. It was interesting to see hospice because, okay, so the inpatient hospice was on the third floor and he was on like the fourth floor, like med surge when he came in after he had a, he came into the ER in kidney failure, he had a nephrostomy tube placed. Mm -hmm. Then they sent him up to med surge. And I had to. I got in a fight with one of the residents because we have new residents here at the medical school. So I got. Oh, yeah, I got into. A, I got into a fight with the third year, basically like I don't want him sent home because I have intuition that he's so close to death. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. And the resident is trying to send him home four hours after he had a nephrostomy tube placed. Mm. And I'm like, that's not happening, dude. Mm. It's just not happening. So I got up in this guy's face. I felt a little bad about it, but I had to do what I had to do. And then I had to keep using the phrase uh, unsafe home environment, yeah. which is so frustrating to be on this carousel of people who keep coming through the med surge room, who I have to keep being like, my home environment's unsafe. Why is your home environment unsafe? Oh, because I have a mentally ill mother at home. How long has she been mentally ill? How severe is she mentally ill? Going through the same thing For every time. me, I have to talk about this over yeah. and over and over again as the person who's his advocate. Right. And so it's, by the 10th time you tell that story, you're either ready to punch someone in the face or just like completely give up and just be like, I'm so sick of doing this with yeah. all you people. Don't you, don't you all talk to each other? You know what I mean? No. Yeah. <laughs> we don't. Right. I mean, I mean. So seeing the difference between that floor and the inpatient hospice floor was like, it's a world's difference. Where it's interdisciplinary, yeah. it's cohesive. And you know, there's, you know all the reasons why we don't talk to each other. Right. But that doesn't make it any easier as a patient to actually go through that. It doesn't change my experience no, at all. No, in fact, all. it yeah. makes it just as bad, if not worse, because you're like, oh, I see exactly what we talk about on the show. And, and I remember, because we were talking intermittently throughout that, and, and I was like, yeah, this is just, this is the, this is the struggle. And the sooner he's in hospice, and you ended up at inpatient hospice, because mm -hmm. like you said, your home environment is not a place. Right, my mother can't be a, the other thing I learned is home hospice is basically like where the wife is the primary caretaker or the husband is the primary caretaker. Right, you have to step up and do it and or hospice, hire somebody. Yeah, right. and hospice comes in like once a week or right. whatever, like I didn't really People don't realize that. that, yeah. 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 And so uh, I was like, well that just can't happen right. because my mother is you know, unfit. Like, right. She needs someone to take care of her. Right. right. And my mother is, you know, she's severely mentally ill. Right. So, like, I don't want one of the people that are coming over to try and help my father, and my mother is yelling the N-word at them or something. Yeah, yeah. And now I'm stuck in this position of the hospice people feel unsafe coming to this house, and they don't want to be there. And so I was like, it has to be inpatient. Right. And so for, like, a week, I was just, like, desperately trying to make this inpatient thing happen. And I finally got it to happen. Mm. And then from there, when he got in inpatient, it went pretty quick. There's a weird thing that happens when you sign over to hospice care. They make you like sign a thing, and mm. you sign a, a piece of paper, and it's very like ceremonial and symbolic. Yeah, there's a ceremony to it. Yeah, yeah, and it's like, it is now, I'm okay with dying. I'm gonna mm. sign this piece of paper that says, I, Mark Heinemer, am ready to shuffle off this mortal coil. Mm. And from there, like, the denial didn't fully recede, but it was kind of, uh, he started to let go a little more than he had been during well, the process. When did he write that Facebook post that we shared on the page? He had had that pre-written before he went into hospice. Got it. Yeah, so it wasn't like I've broken through some denial and here's... Right. Yeah. Yeah. So the, you'd mentioned... And the, truth, and the truth is I added bits to that Facebook post because 
you as the person who's left behind, you are now in control of the narrative. So uh -huh. I felt it was my right to go through and edit some pieces. And I talked to him about it when he was on uh, his deathbed. And yeah. I was like, I'm changing this line, I'm adding this, because I don't think that this matches up with my version of reality, mm. right? And then mm. I changed the next line, and we went through it. And but it you was, did it together. Yeah. Yeah. So was, was, that, was that a process that you think was helpful for him and you? Yeah, yes. Right. I would say. Yeah. Maybe not for, I don't know. You know, for him it's interesting because <clears throat> he was so severely in denial or I think it was like my father was, when people are emotionally neglected, they white knuckle their existence. And my grandmother was like just a terrible, terrible woman. Mm. I mean, horrendous. Like no, You don't hear that she, said about grandma. She was so, so bad that it gives me such glee in front of however many people are watching on this live to, 550. to shit talk her memory and just let everyone know, like straight to camera, what a terrible person that Rita Heineber was. Just the worst, the worst. Anyway, that gives me true bliss. It gives me true bliss to you do know, that. You know, strangely, I, I enjoy watching you have catharsis. <laughs> but yes, but, it's, but it tells right. you something about your relationship. Yeah, no, totally. And so <clears throat> he was emotionally neglected by her, and she, you know, and so he sort of white-knuckled it, and he white-knuckled it to the bitter end. Mm -hmm. That was how he was going to go out. And the crazy thing was when he slipped into a coma, he was still around with no food and water five days later which is how you know that the mind is so much more powerful than the body because he was just not ready to let go. And I'm in this state where I'm sitting in the room, I'm watching my father die. The, the tumor in his stomach has a stronger pulse than his heart does. Mm. I can feel it, you can see it moving, it's mm. growing, it's eating him alive. And his mind is not ready to let go. Mm. He's like, I need to figure some shit out while I'm in this coma before I'm ready to shuffle off this mortal coil. That's how badly he needed to, I don't know what happens in that coma state. Nobody but does. in yeah. my opinion, he mm. needed to process his emotions and that was happening in some sort of a comalytic environment. One, one thing all the hospice people and end of life people will say is that they can hear you in that state. Yeah, people keep, kept saying they that keep during saying the process. That. Do you think, are you convinced that's true from your own experience, subjectively speaking? Yeah. Because you talked to him a lot. I did. Yeah. I think it's probably something we tell the people who are left behind because yeah, yeah, the people yeah. who are left behind need to feel that. Need to feel that. Yeah, like yeah. that you're yeah. sitting in the room and you're reference. Also, a weird thing that happens is I got really obsessive about being there at the moment of death because I, I was spending like, you know, I spent there like two weeks. I'm like there every day. And I was like, I have to be there the moment he dies. Like it's mm. very important. Mm. And then I just suddenly realized like, it's not important, and maybe he's waiting for me to go so that he can be alone when he passes. Uh -huh. And then when I, I went to visit him one morning, and I left, and as I walked out of the room, like literally three to four minutes later, he died. Mm. So it was interesting because I had convinced myself it was something I needed to be there for, and then I was like, it doesn't matter, mm. you know? Mm -hmm. Like it's whatever he needs. If he needs me to not be there, that's fine. Which it sounds like in the end you let him take his own course. Right. You were there, you know, fighting a bit, but it wasn't like, no, I, you're not going to do any more chemotherapy, even mm -hmm. though we all know it's not doing any good for you. It might be harming you, it might be shortening your life. Yeah. And in this mix, you're having a baby in Thanksgiving. Yeah. And he was clear that he wanted to be there for the birth of his only grandchild. Right. And so there was this, again, not only denial, but this sort of hanging on 
it seemed. And I, I, I've met Mark Heimler. I got to spend a good day with him. Yeah. And he's a remarkable cat. Like, he's one of those people that's so easy to talk to him. He gives off an air of knowledge and professionalism and wisdom. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, so that's where Tom got that piece, that tiny 1% of his personality that is just wise and brilliant. And then the rest <laughs> is just a disaster. <laughs> but, but, you know, you could see where that comes from. And then to have to watch... You know, and again, he's holding it together the whole time. Yeah. You said someone from the art, the review journal, like came by, and he was just like, "Hey, let's talk about the Bill of Rights or something." Right? Yeah. The craziest thing happened when uh, I'll just tell you like who my father really was, like mm. for the audience members who don't know, like, you know, my father was, like I said, emotionally neglected in childhood. And you ever seen those? I've been using this metaphor all the time, but like, and I told you this, but like those Reese's monkeys that they had taken from their mothers and then they put that wire monkey in with the fur over it mm -hmm. and this newborn baby monkey who has nothing and nobody in the entire world just clings so tightly mm -hmm. and just white knuckles this wire monkey, right? I think humans have a lot of different wire monkeys like drug addiction is a wire monkey mm -hmm. or like filling your life with a sports team is a wire monkey mm -hmm. or whatever it is, right? For and me, an actual wire monkey is yes. a wire monkey because yeah, yeah. I have one. Well, you know what? That's there's something. Doctor Bobo. Yeah, yeah, there's something good about that. There I is. Think. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you're no, but I think you know my father's wire monkey was the, the law and capitalization in America. So, like the things that we really care about, that he really cared about, were we understood like he understood deeply, and he passed this down to me that America is a weak link sport that America is not like basketball, where like one guy like LeBron James, some superstar, like an Elon Musk, can go out and just make everybody better. Mm. That's not how America works. America's a weak link sport, like soccer, where one bad pass, and we don't get to score down here. Mm. So getting people from America's ghettos, getting people who deserve to be in, you know, who have the intelligence to succeed elsewhere, getting them out of poverty, getting them into good mm. situations for themselves. This is like one of the most important things you can do as Americans. And creating a fair justice system is key to that. And this is my father's legacy. And so how many people take their emotional neglect from childhood and turn it into, I'm going to create a, f a more fair, a better world <laughs> for, for everybody else? Like, mm. not many people do that. Yeah, so yeah. that's why he was a really, Special guy. Uh, and, and that comes through in every every minute I got the privilege of spending with him, which wasn't yeah. enough. Uh, and, it, and, it and one of the stories was, so as he's laying there, he has just slipped into a coma. And uh, a maintenance guy, this guy from the Review Journal, I won't say his name, but this guy, you know, is tatted, you know, like, don't know his entire life story, but maintenance man comes. And he goes, you know, hey, man, he's a Mexican guy. And he's like, I don't know if I really want to see Mark like this because, you know, Mark's like the man in my mind. Mm. Like, because, you know, it's a very, like, macho culture. And so he doesn't want to see him diminished because he goes, you know, Mark, Mark, like, helped me out when nobody would help me out. Mm. He, like, helped me with my child support. Like, he helped me become a better man, basically, mm. you know. Mm. And so he didn't want to come in the room. And I was like, I totally understand that mm. and respect that. And uh, after he left... Ten minutes later, these people from Leadership Las Vegas came, and this is like you know the business council of all the business leaders, and gave him uh, the Hall of Fame award for being, a, you know, a dedicated servant all these years to the organization and just like exemplifying, you know. And so it's just the the dichotomy of the two, like that you can touch somebody so low and so high, and then they came and they presented him the award like in the hospice room while he was in a coma. 
And it was just like, it was crazy, man. That, that, that is the magic of Mark Heineber. Here's a guy who would take his time out to go teach at University of Phoenix, right? To, to, to fairly disadvantaged kids who were trying to, to get ahead. Right. He, he told me about that a little bit. And he took his time to help me with a legal thing we were doing and, and came with me and was there. And, I, you know, he is a, gen, a generous of spirit and remarkable. And it's no surprise that he came from that environment because it made him tougher yeah. than he otherwise would have been. Yeah. Sometimes I think I'm too soft because I didn't come from enough adversity, right? You have enough adversity in your life, despite being born in relative privilege, because you know he's a lawyer, yeah. affluent. There's enough adversity in your life that when you're on your deathbed, I suspect people are gonna be saying similar things about you. Um, you know, I told, my, I told my aunt the other day, I said, uh, she was like, you know, Thomas, this is, it's like tragic. This is a tragedy, like what's happening in your life, you know? And I was like- Your aunt said this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm Benjamin Button in it. Like, I'm gonna start out, you know, dying in the worst circumstances and I'm gonna get to this beautiful That's place. Right. You remember at the end of that movie where yeah. Brad Pitt's like all young and sexy and he's traveling through <laughs> India? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, if you start out in woeful circumstances like that, you end up you know, because I had all that mental illness with my mother, and you know, she was my primary caretaker, and you know, like all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, if you start off with bad childhood, when joy comes later, you really get to experience joy yeah. for what it is—this temporary, beautiful, fleeting thing that you must, in, you must, like, really dive into that moment and live that moment. Whereas, if you're born into great circumstances, things will just be taken from you. Yeah, that's you true. Know? It's all downhill. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's funny. I think gratitude for what you do have is that's, a powerful that's motivator. Yeah. It's weird. This morning, I was, I've was i been off my meditation game for a while. So this morning, I'm like, oh, I'm going to meditate. Yeah. It rarely happens in meditation that your, your little default mode network that shuts your brain up, the inhibitory neurons, they, they, they really go quiet. So for a minute, for a good solid minute, uh, all of it went quiet and all I felt was, oh my gosh, I have a beautiful family and a career where I do stuff to help people and I have teammates that I like to work with and I enjoy conversating with. And I just started, just tears started coming down. Yeah. I'm like, why am I crying? And it's that gratitude that can drive us to actually do things in the world that are, that are, that are better than the world was five minutes ago. But we have to be open to it. And it shouldn't have to take you know, a loved one dying or something. You've always felt it, I think, right? Yeah, gratitude. Yeah, gratitude. Yeah, I have, I have a, uh, I try and have more gratitude. Yeah. You know, it's hard. It's hard. Because you're like, somebody cuts you off in traffic, you're like, my life is the worst life anybody's ever lived. My phone died. <laughs> right, exactly. God, yeah. yeah. It's worthless, this it's, life. It's like that David uh, Foster Wallace speech where he says, you know, this is water. Like, yeah. this is the dogma that surrounds us and it's all around us at all times. Like, this is water, but we're fish. Yeah, and yeah. we don't realize that this we is water and that we live in it. So you have to like get out of your you know default mode network basically, and like really be grateful. And you know it's like since I've been processing these emotions and things, I, like emotion from grief comes in these like just waves at you. Ah. So like you know in the past like two weeks, I've been the most sad I've ever been, the ah. most scared I've ever been, the ah. most angry I've ever been, the most anxious I've ever been the most grateful I've ever been, the most joy I've ever felt. And you'll be sitting there feeling normal and then all of a sudden a wave of whatever emotion will hit Mm. you. 
And so it makes it easier to sort of get to that place where you ride that wave. And you, you do like what Alan Watts said, which is basically like, you're under no um, obligation to be the person you were even 10 minutes ago. So mm -hmm. it's like, listen, 10 minutes ago, I was sitting in my car perfectly normally and driving down the road, like thinking angry thoughts about the person in front of me with the big SUV who just cut me off, right? Mm. And now I'm crying openly, weeping in my car because of how beautiful my life is and that I have mm. people around me who love mm. me. Mm. So that's like, mm. that's, that's, that's part of processing the grief and that's everything. That's fine. You know, everything you just said, wait until your little girl is born. And the, the minute you hold her, you're gonna be like, Every emotion uh, that you've had, every single thing is just gonna pour out in random ways. You're gonna humiliate yourself. It's gonna be amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's gonna be amazing. And you're gonna see in her your dad. You're gonna see in, I mean, it's just, this is the beauty of, of being. Right? And how, how beautiful too, like that we have children and that we don't have to go on forever. Oh God, thank yeah, right? you. It's like you know, like, this is, okay, we're gonna have Peter Atia on the show. He's a big longevity guy, he's yeah. coming on. And I wanna tell him my first question, because we're buddies from way back in the Stanford days. Yeah. Why the fuck do you wanna live forever? Right. It sounds horrible. Right. I cannot wait to come to a point in my life where I'm like, I've done my thing, yeah. and here's my legacy, and here's who will tell my story, to quote Hamilton, and this is what's gonna happen. It's like Steve Jobs gave that amazing commencement at Stanford, right. where he was basically like, I'm sure that life tried to evolve without death in the beginning, yeah. but it was very hard to make way for the young, to innovate, to change, right? right. So like. This is a part of process that evolutionary biology does not care about us as individuals, but it does care about us as the whole, yeah. as the collective, and yeah. it, you know, organizes for the collective, right? That's right. And so you have to like not be. This is part of the whole meditation, the Buddhist thing, and all that stuff. Is you have to not be so attached to your individual. This this illusory self. self. Yes, exactly. That's recreated. That's like, the where the pain comes from. Yeah, yeah. you're telling yourself this story, mm -hmm. and that that story. You know, there was there's a lot of sadness surrounding my father's death, but there's also this feeling that now I'm in control of the narrative, mm. and now I write the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what am I gonna write the story to be, right? And so, I don't know yet. I don't know what the answer is, but I'm excited to put good chapters in that book. This is, this is, this is the point where you say, and by the way, Z-Dog, I've been thinking, I quit. Because <laughs> I hate this so much. Z-Dog MD. I'm still waiting for that. Because Listen, when you need, get that woke. I need the Bitcoin price to increase like, like 10x more, you know. And, and then, then, I'm, then I'm gonna be like. Then you can let go. Listen, yeah. I'm saying, I bought a yacht then and you can let go. I'm out. You know, it's funny, so you said something, and this is a slight change of subject, but not really, kind of dovetailing onto that. So we had Donald Hoffman on the show right. uh, talking about the nature of consciousness, et cetera. Well, he's also, uh, cognitive psychologist. So I've heard him talk about this before, that this illusory self that we create, our narrating mind is constantly creating and recreating, um, evolved in an interesting way. So in the early days when groups of humans got together, they realized that if we cooperate, we can get more food, share it among each other. So when one guy has a good hunt, we can share it and we all survive better. So very quickly though, you can imagine, and, and conservatives understand this, yeah. Cheating arises, right. where one person decides, you know what, everybody's cooperating, and if I don't go out there and risk my life hunting, I can still get the food by just telling them, well, I went out and nothing happened, I couldn't find anything, so could I borrow some of yours? And it turns out evolutionary game theory predicts that when you reach about 50% cheat rate, right. where half the, half the tribe is like, I ain't doing anything, the tribe collapses, it goes extinct as a right. group. So what ended up happening was an evolutionary arms race where the mind started to really evolve. So the cooperators 
got really good at detecting lies <laughs> and people who were not uh, going by the by, by the golden rule, do unto yeah. others. They were not reciprocating. So a lot of our frontal lobe, a lot of our cortex evolved as a way to detect cheaters and improve cooperation socially. So I can pick up cues about lying. I can, I can kind of keep track mentally of 150 people in a tribe and what they've done for me and what right. I've done for them. Right. But it turns out the cheaters started to evolve as well. They got better at lying until they got so good at lying that no one could catch them. And that was the point where they believed their own lies. So self-deception, actually believing your own bullshit, right. is an evolutionary advantage in human tribal situations. And it makes you think, okay, this self-deception, first of all, requires a self which is an illusion, yeah. but it's an evolutionary construct. So that means that if I'm a really good self-deceiver, I might actually do well in society. So you think about people who uh, are politicians, they believe a lot of the crap they're saying. You think about drug addicts, um, people who are addicted to, to opioids, who say, no, this is for my chronic pain and nothing else helps. And in, in some cases, that is pure and simple self-deception, right? And it feels so real that when you confront it head on, it is absolutely going nowhere. Yeah. Anti-vaxxers, same thing, self-deception. Now, if you think about your father and his denial, that's a kind of self-deception. Oh, totally. But with, totally. A, with a cause. That's the wire monkey, or it's Plato's allegory of the cave. You're Explain. in the cave and you're watching the shadows on the wall, right? And you think that the shadows on the wall are life. Mm. Do you know the allegory? Of the I don't cave? know that, yeah. Okay, so there's a cave and there's a fire in the cave, or you know, there's different variations of it, but basically, like, you, there's a bunch of prisoners chained up, and they're watching the shadows from life outside the cave on the wall. Mm. One day, one prisoner is unshackled, and he goes out and sees that, no, this is life. This is what a tree actually looks like. It wasn't the shadow of the tree, mm. I thought. He goes back and tries to describe it to the other people. He unshackles them. They won't leave the cave mm. because they're so convinced that the, the shadow of the tree is life mm. and not outside actual the life yeah. yeah actual life yeah and it, it's right. again it's a variant on self-deception so i think part of the goal of this whole show and movement is like we need to wake up a little bit well i have this thing i always say which is like you know the truth hurts it hurts a lot when you take truth in that like really hurts especially if like something is going wrong in your life so you know, you're at the bottom of a hierarchy maybe you don't want to be at the bottom of, or you're addicted to drugs maybe you don't want to be addicted to, or you're around shitty people maybe you don't want to be around, or you know, you're failing because you don't apply enough effort or energy or grit or determination, and you're just kind of lazy. Those are hard truths to accept, right? Mm. So what you do is you lie to yourself. You say, it's not me, it's systemic racism. Systemic racism is the problem. Or, you know, I was just born into a poor family and people are like, we just don't get breaks, man. Because the rich, they cheat and they lie and they steal and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And it's like, okay, but you could just stop your bullshit right now, see the truth for what it is, and work hard at fixing it. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you keep telling yourself the lie, that lie is going to compound. And then at the end of your life, you're going to be stuck with this mass delusion that you're going to, you know, you're going to end up, it can go wrong in so many ways. Like that, lie compounding and, you know? and and remember a lot of these lies we tell ourselves are based in truth so yes. if you say for example um systemic racism or systemic sexism yes well, it's based in truth it's based in truth, <laughs> based in truth. <laughs> but 
if you give up and say, well, okay, now I'm the victim of this and there's nothing I can right. do. That's the thing. That's when there's a problem. Yeah. Right? Now, over the weekend, there was this- It's the car crash victim analogy. You know this? No. If you're the victim of a car crash, you are the victim of that car crash. Right. True. But there is nothing that you, that the person who perpetrated the car crash on you can do to help you. You have to help yourself rehabilitate from right. a car crash. Right. right, Which is like, yeah, is that terrible? Yes. But it's a terrible truth. Yeah, it's the truth. way reality the truth. works. Yeah, yeah. Now you can work to change the truth. You can make cars safer. You can address systemic racism and sexism. But at the moment, this is the truth. Yes. Right. So over the weekend, this big thing happened on Twitter, right? This uh, Dallas doctor, male, uh, named Tig, Gary Tiggs, uh, got printed in the Dallas County Medical Society Journal where he said, they were asking, is, do you think there's a gender pay gap between male and female doctors? And uh, if so, what, what should be done about it? Yeah. And they had a bunch of opinions, and then there was Gary's opinion. And Gary wrote it this way. Well, yeah, there's a difference because women don't work as hard as men. They don't do as hard of shifts. They, they, maybe they want to stay home. Maybe they want to socialize. Maybe they want to spend more time. Whatever it is, it, they don't work as hard. If they work put in the hours and worked as hard, they should get paid the same. Unless that's the case, tough. That's the discrepancy. That's fair. Well, you can imagine what happened. Uh, people got very furious at this sentiment. Yeah. Now, here's the way I saw this. Yeah, this is a totally bastardly way to say what he's, I think, what I think he might have been trying to say, which is there are real reasons that men and women are paid differently that have to do with hours worked, but you can adjust for that and then look at systemic bias. But he's not looking at that. He's also not looking at outcomes. Well, it turns out there's a lot of data that women have better outcomes because maybe they spend more time, maybe they don't do as many tests, whatever it is. Right. They're not as RVU driven. So all that aside, the kerfuffle online was the outrage that, not so much at his words, which was clear, but at the journal, the Dallas County Medical Society for printing his words at all. Right. And to me, this is again, deception. That people like this don't have these views. They do. Why don't we print it in the magazine? There was no editorializing. They weren't saying, no, we agree with him or we agree with this comment that says the opposite side by side. They were saying, here's what doctors think in our constituency. Yes. If you are not strong enough to see that, and then make your opinion known, which a lot of people did. If you're saying, you know what, we should burn this journal, or these people are, are horrible sexists for even printing it, I think you're missing a bigger point. It's a kind of deception. No, this is how people think. Let's discuss it now. Let's yeah. get to the root of it. And I think that's, that, you know, it's interesting because it then it made national news. Yeah, I mean, and you know, this is sort of, this is, comes back to my father too. This is my father's legacy. My father mm -hmm. was one of the preeminent First Amendment lawyers in this country. Like we grew up in my household talking about the First Amendment mm. at all times. That is weird. It is weird. Yeah. Yeah. One of the, like, I mean, that was how we like, you know, would substitute, because he had a hard time dealing with his emotions and everything. So we'd substitute emotional conversations with like, let's talk about, let's have a debate ah. about the law. Yeah, right? right, yeah. So, you know, one of the things about the First Amendment is it allows these deceptions mm. to not go unchecked. You can see them for what they are people lying to themselves or people having shitty thoughts, right? Yeah, yeah. Like if somebody is out there thinking black people are inferior, mm. I want to know that they think yeah, that way. Right. I don't want them, especially if they're in a position of power, I yeah. don't want them keeping that to themselves. I right. would love for them to speak out right. and feel safe enough to be like, I am, I'm a racist, right. you know? Right. And then you get to know that that's how they think. And this is how we error correct. 
Right. Because we can actually see the truth. Right. Whereas when we just lie to each other all the time, we de-platform, we have safe spaces, yeah, et cetera, yeah, yeah, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You were creating deception zones. Yeah, yeah, Where yeah. you can just, and you know, this is why the left is eating itself. Yeah. Because they're just deceiving each other into oblivion, right? Right. You know? Well, you know, it's interesting because if Steve Bannon gets deplatformed at the New Yorker thing, yeah. right? To me, that was a mistake because if yeah, you know, debate he, him. He's yeah, a, he's a moron. He's a moron. He's a total moron. Let's hear his moronic right. views. Yes. Like if you're so afraid, if you're afraid, okay, if you're so afraid of his ideas. We were talking about this earlier yeah. about Steve Bannon. It's like right. He, he's one of these guys who believes in the fourth turning, right? Which right. is like every eighty years the prophecy. It says blah blah <laughs> blah. It's like human lifespans are eighty years. You idiot. Of course, there's going to be lots of change when generational cycles ha- occur. What are you even talking about? Like right. Right. So let you, him get up there on, and speak in that right. in Manhattan or wherever right. the conference is going to be and right. show how stupid he is. And then, then you have someone like Jordan Peterson who's not stupid. Right. But whose ideas some people find, you know, uh, they go too far or they're sexist or they're based too much in sort of these biblical archetypes and things like that. Now, I don't think a lot of people are going to deplatform Jordan Peterson because he can sit there and have a debate with you with Sam Harris on the left and they can talk. So, but, but, to, to de-platform people in general, I think we're, we're, it's a kind of self-deception. It's yeah. saying, I live in this bubble where only my truths are right and other truths are scary. No, let's talk about it. If you have a sexist in the form of a doctor and he's willing to say this stuff, by the way, he's since apologized, but you know, he kind of yeah. has to at this right. point because right. people were swarming his Yelp reviews and stuff, which by the way, ZPAC, listen to me, sometimes y'all, and it's my fault for not being a better um, host, Sometimes y'all get scary. So if you disagree with someone in the comments on one of my pieces, and I get messages from people who are deeply hurt because I know I'm looking over your shoulder and at the, directly at the camera. <laughs> people get deeply hurt because they're piled on by the ZPAC who have a certain mentality, whether it's pro-vax, whether it's post-science, whether it's you know uh, uh, anti-patient experience as an indicator, whatever it is. <clears throat> We're bigger than that, than shutting down those conversations. Engage right. with people, have the conversation. Be civil about it. That's what's kind of we're missing now. But, and your dad was good at that because he could actually see, he could hold the paradox of different arguments and have it with his own son, even yeah. if it was a proxy for emotional connection. Right, Yeah. right. Well, we, do, we do that all the time in the studio. We do it all like, the time. Because you're, you're always trying to provoke me into outrage. <laughs> Every single day. See, well, the thing is, you know, capitalism always ends in slavery or the opposite. You know, you know liberals is just dumb communist cavemen. I'm like, well, wow. Both of those things are true. <laughs> exactly. Hold Uncheck free market capitalism does end in slavery and liberals are regressive. <laughs> Everybody knows exactly. that. Except for classic liberals. This is why people can't, people are like, oh, Tom must love Trump because he said systemic racism is bullshit. It's like, no, no, Trump is the worst. <laughs> Let's not get it twisted. He's the dumbest person we've ever had in office. I mean, I don't know about Grover Cleveland, but like, you know. That guy, Grover Cleveland and I, man, every time I have my seance with the old presidents, which I do every Friday, it's kind of, I have friends over, we have nachos. And I like, I, ha- I went Tammany Hall on uh, Hart, Warren G. Harding. Teapot Dome, son. Was it Te- Teapot? Teapot Dome. Oh, who was Tammany Hall? <laughs> you know, it's funny, someone... Jason Wolf was like, you know, dude, you guys spend so much time being funny on here that we don't get to see how amazingly insightful you guys are. Is this insightful? I don't know. I feel like we're, we've regressed into stupidity. Let's read some comments. So Pammy Hopper says, okay, I'm a supporter now. Are you worth it, Z, with the like, this emoji? Am I worth being supported on the show? You know what? I support Z. Wait, I support Z. <laughs> Personally. All, all joking aside, it's funny. So we actually have been talking to Facebook about this. What people want to support us for 
is they believe in what we're doing. And then they want to have private conversations with us. Well, the, it's interesting because yeah. the comedy and everything, like the music videos or the whatever, the metamoji, whatever we're doing, like we, we like to do that because it's right. really, we like to we love it. make we're, stupid jokes. We are jackasses. Like, yeah. you know, one of my favorite jokes was uh, the one where you were like, uh, these two nurses were talking, I was like, yeah, me three. They were talking about me too. I was like, me three. And they were like, oh, is that your movement? And I was like, no, I want to be the third in a menage with the both of you. <laughs> They call risk management. Whatever. That's, yeah, that's right, like right. such a great joke. It's like, inappropriate. Anyway. It's funny. Anyway, right. it's not, the comedy is just to get people in the door and right. then fixing healthcare. It's the real primary is like, Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. what's happening. That's right. You know? And look at all the people who support us. James, Sonny, Barbara. I mean, this is great. Now, again, why would you give us four ninety nine a month, right? Like, we have the studio and all that. Well, because we have the studio and all that. Like, it costs a lot of money to do what we do. Our hope is if we grow the subscribers big enough because people believe in what we're doing and we're giving them a voice, right. then we can have a solid team and we're beholden to no fucking person in the world. No one can tell us to shut the fuck up. No one can tell us, you can't say that. Could you use the word flu right. instead of influenza? No one can tell us, you can't talk about, you know, uh, uh, sexism in medicine the way you're doing it. Yeah. Well. No, we can do whatever we want because we're beholden to our audience. Totally. And when we're deep in the middle of a live that no sponsors are ever going to watch, we can just basically freely admit, like, we would not want to have sponsors ever. if we could avoid it because we just want to do whatever the hell we, we want to do and just have that reciprocal relationship with the audience where it's like, what are you guys thinking? Let's, let's fucking change shit. Like, yeah. Let's make it, you know, because I went through this ringer, okay, like the last, like, you know, month. I've been through this healthcare ringer. Mm. Shit is so broken. Mm. It's crazy how broken it is. I mean, and there are bills coming in still. I'm dealing with like these random bills and it's like, well, this bill you gotta pay, but this one you don't need to pay. But this one, eh, it's on the fence. What the fuck? Just tell me, tell be me, transparent. How about give me yeah. a bill yeah. that's like the bill. Yeah. You know? Just a bill. Just a bill. And I'm sitting here on Capitol Hill. Exactly. And now it's off to the Senate where they vote on me. Right. And I hope someday to be a law. Cause I hope and I pray that I will. Today I am still just a bill. That's what you pay for, ZPAC, right there. They don't pay for that. They pay not to have that. Um, by the way, I got this angry message this morning. And you know this triggers me, right? Mm. Angry message from a former Z-Packer who's loudly announcing they are no longer a Z-Packer. Yes. Oh my God, I used to be a huge supporter of you, Z-Dog MD. I love it when they use my phone, Z-Dog MD. I, I use it. And <laughs> now, but what's up with this? Four ninety nine a month. Now you want us to pay to watch you? Huh. You know, you're just like Dr. Oz, man. Like, is there nobody out there not just trying to make a buck? And I'm like, bitch, listen to me right fucking now. We do everything we do for you for free and gladly because it's part of our movement. None of that has changed. If you care about us enough that you think you want to spend the amount of a freaking latte to have private conversations with us and to support our movement, that's great. If you don't, don't fucking come on my page and tell me I'm out because I'll just ban you, which is exactly what I did. So now even if she doesn't want to be out, she's out. And this is why socialism doesn't work. Because <laughs> when you give people stuff for free, they get entitled, okay? Universal basic income, my ass. That shit is never going to work, all right? Oh.
This is what we do all day. <laughs> we literally have these conversations. I come at him from slightly left of center. He comes at me from anarchy, the anarchy nebula. Crypto anarchy. Crypto anarchy. I told you my story about how I got out of I got out of jury duty by expressing my real views about crypto anarchy. Tell me what you told them. Because this were, was honest. You were not perjuring. No, yeah, they yeah. were. They were like. Uh, yeah, do you like, have it? Look what Logan's doing. It says now only four ninety nine. I can see it on here. <laughs> they were basically like, amazing. do you have any thoughts that might uh, disqualify you from serving on this jury? I was like, mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't believe in the nation state, and I believe that Bitcoin is going to dethrone the Fed, and then when that happens, the currency is going to devalue, and there's going to be a speculative attack between the yuan and between hard currencies, a.k.a. Bitcoin, and when that happens, we are going to privatize all the police and fire. So, <laughs> basically, so. And the poor, the, poor, the poor defendant who's like probably some like white-collar crime is sitting there going... I'm with Brosif over there. <laughs> That's amazing. They, yeah, you actually they said They were that. like immediately like, um, yeah, Mr. Heinemann, you're excused. And I was like... <laughs> You know, that's true. I'm out of here for being honest. For it's being feels, me. feels great. I'm rejected yeah. for being me. No more self-deception. <laughs> Plus, I looked up the dude later, you know, I was like, oh, he did it for show. <laughs> like, it was a murder trial. <gasps> yeah. Ooh. And I was like, he did it. Now he's trying to waste my time. He took a man's whole life. Now he's trying to waste my time? Mm-hmm. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. I ain't having it. Oh, hell no. I ain't having it. Oh, hell no. <laughs> I love how we started talking about your poor father and his passing, and we end with an uh-huh. This is because we use humor to, you know, We use humor as, as, as a high-level coping mechanism. Yeah, yeah that's coping true. Mechanism. Our tro we call it our Trojan horse. That's right. Uh, some call it a very weak-ass coping mechanism. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, no, nah, I'm fine. Everybody's <laughs> laughing. If I'm such a bad dad, why are we all dancing? <laughs> <laughs> so like on 30 Rock, Tracy Morgan's like, just, he's at a PTA meeting and everyone's staring at him stone face. He's like, if I'm such a bad dad, why are we all dancing? He's the only one dancing. <laughs> it's the best. Danielle says, you guys are great. Seriously great. So sorry about your dad, uh, Tom. <sighs> and then Carrie says, blow me, Tom. All right. Yeah, that's, that's good. Carrie she's, must, a, she's a top fan plus one supporter. She must love socialism. Mm, well, she's in England, so. Oh. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. You mean the People's Republic of England? <laughs> UKistan? UKistan. Yes. Uh, uh, these comments, though, let me see here. Uh, the Z Pirate Ship says Pammy Hopper, who is a supporter. Uh, Z Dog for Surgeon General says supporter Michael Golding. Yeah. Do you think I should be Surgeon General? That sounds terrible. No, you do a really bad job. Vivek Murthy did a really he good job. He did a great job. And uh, he's totally different than you in terms That's of personality. True. I had a call with Vivek. He like really cares. Yeah, he's <laughs> you know, he kind like, of earnest. He like deeply, he's like, the thing about this. Is, exactly. You know, he'd have, with he, the exact, he wouldn't use humor as a coping mechanism. No. Mm -mm, no. Mm -mm. He, no, he uses coping as a humor mechanism. Yes. <laughs> it's the totally opposite. <laughs> now, the thing about injustices. <laughs> Where I'd be like, Bitcoin? What's that? How do I get rich? I think this is like, you know what's funny about this episode that we just did? is This is a very true representation of like what goes on in the studio, it's, it's on, true. behind the scenes on a daily basis. And you know what's especially true about it? Logan not saying a motherfucking exactly, word. Exactly, yeah. Logan, He's like in the back there clicking boxes on the computer. Logan will just sit there like, uh -huh. <laughs> and then And then you'll look at what he's doing. And he's just photoshopped me onto the baby head on the cover of the Nirvana album. Where, oh, there it is, <laughs> only $4.99. Where, <laughs> where I'm floating with my little dingle poking out, yeah. like on the cover of the Nirvana. <laughs> and it says, smells like Z's armpits. And that's, I'm like, thanks. That's great. That was a good use of resources. Listen, we should really thank everybody who's here because they're just like us. They're like 
They're using humor as a coping mechanism. A. They come for the insightful commentary. They deeply B. care about the nature of the universe. C. Y'all a bunch of weirdos is basically what I'm saying. You're just like you're just like us. You weirdos. <laughs> you weirdos, you. <laughs> 274 weirdos stuck with us in the middle of a fucking work day. <laughs> uh, oh, see, tell me like, about your shirt, by the way. What? People are oh, asking about your shirt. East, East Bay, Bay Physical Oakland Ed. Physical Ed. Yeah, I got it from Old Navy. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> they got real cheap shirts there, see? What else do you want? Fool, I go to Marshalls <laughs> for my shirts, all right? And Nordstrom Rack, which is like upscale Marshalls. I was at one time I was at uh, open mic comedy and the what yeah this, the, the the comedian was making fun of my friend he was like shut up you white boy piece of shit whatever and he's like look at you with your sweater laugh at me because I shop at Big Lots and he was like this is from Target he's like Target bitch I shop at Walmart <laughs> Target 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 Target's where middle class fancy people go it kind of is that's mm-hmm. where my my wife went today to shop for me you know why she's shopping for me because she's gone for the next three days working at Stanford. And I've got the kids by myself. So I'm like, okay, let me give you my shopping list. She's like, what do you need? I'm like, I need some chicken thighs. Do you have a bunch of, uh, like, it's like the, the Pyrex glass, and it says, like, Monday, <laughs> Tuesday, Wednesday. And it, it's like, she, it's just she, three casseroles, she and gives they have Post-its me, on them. She gives me a single-side printout because she knows I won't flip it because I'm too stupid. And it just says, Monday, they need to practice violin. Take them to school. Pick them up from school. <laughs> Make sure to take the trash out. Bathe, bathe yourself. Bathe yourself. <laughs> right. One of them was like... Make sure to eat. One of them was even, the plumber's coming. And I'm like, I made that appointment, bitch. <laughs> I know the plumber's coming. She's like, I don't think you know, though. Because usually I'm the one who says, remember that appointment you made with the plumber? You better remember. So, yeah, that's that's our life. So, for the next three days, Z-Dog's going to be like... Oh. So, basically, I didn't, I didn't do PE in the East Bay. <laughs> now you know. You know what's ironic? I might have done PE yeah. in the East Bay as yeah. a as a Berkeley student. Mm-hmm. I have done different types of PE though. Like, <laughs> that's a penis enhancement joke for those that don't know. <laughs> All right, we're out. We're, we're out. out. <laughs> Thank you for being supporters, uh, and for not for just being a part of the show it means a lot to us. Uh, Logan, any parting words of freedom? Logan Nathan. said woo. He said woo. We out. Bye. We don't believe in woo. Bye, you guys. Except What's for Alex say? Wu. Tom Heineber, no acronyms. Bitcoin thousandaire, other things. Hey, <laughs> millionaire. How dare you? I'm a billionaire in Satoshis. I don't know what a Satoshi is, but uh, it sounds like a delicious <laughs> Japanese sandwich. It's like a mochi, mochi Satoshi. No. Are we still live, by the way? Yeah. If you guys haven't watched we Only in Japan be. yet, you need to watch it. <laughs> I went on a marathon last night with my kids. This guy is in Japan, and he's just like, oh, have you had this? It's chilled monkey brains. Mmm, so delicious. I'm just going to leave now. Ronry.